verses 1 to 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I'm one of the church Frio folk um, and I haven't sort of preached I think in about a year <clears throat> and we've seen a direct correlation between that and a sort of growth spurt at church Frio uh, so apologies if uh, if next week the church is empty but um but yeah th but thanks for having us I suppose um, I, I think it's great when uh, church communities who, who do their expressions of church look quite different come together. I think, uh, I think that bears witness uh, to the work of, of Jesus in our lives. Uh, and so thanks for having us, thanks for hosting us, uh, and thanks, thanks for this opportunity. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's Advent, uh, which is that, that time of the year when I uh, sort of turn into a bit of a Grinch, start turning into a Grinch, uh, when, when people start hanging up the Christmas lights in their gardens, and uh, when the Christmas songs start being played, the Christmas carols start being played in the shops, and that time of the year when we drag out the prophetic writings and, uh, in our Bibles and we dust them off and we quote them to show that, uh, that Jesus was the foretold Messiah. And I don't know about you, but I reckon if that's what all the prophetic books, books like Isaiah, um, if, that's what all if that's what they're in our Bibles for, I think, um, I think they're kind of pointless, aren't they? I mean, I just don't think they particularly add that much to the conversation. If you, uh, if you want to get a sense of whether Jesus was the Messiah or not, I think go read the gospel accounts. Um, I mean, the stuff he says and the things he, the things he does, the way that he responds to his critics, the answers he gives, um, I find that convincing enough. And then he does all this other stuff, the fancy, the, the miracles, healing illnesses, calming the storm, raising people from the dead. I mean, if you, if you read the gospels and you come away unconvinced that Jesus is who he said he was, um, I just don't think the prophets are going to get you over the line. Uh, and so, again, I, I don't know about you, but for the longest time, I sort of 
found the prophets to be largely pointless. I didn't need convincing that Jesus was the saviour of the world. The Gospels did that well enough for me. In fact, I would wager that many of you um, have probably come to know and follow Jesus without the help of the prophets. Uh, so what are we doing here this morning? Having a look at the prophets who, let's be honest, the, the majority of us don't ever really read them um, because they're typically grumpy and they're kind of confusing and they're very repetitious. Um, for, the, for the most part, I think the majority of us are probably convinced that Jesus is the saviour that we need. So maybe we could just wrap this up now and get into the tea and biscuits. Um, but I think we've actually sold the prophets short, um, mostly because we've sold the good news of Jesus short. If Jesus is just our ticket to heaven, then, then yeah, the prophets are largely irrelevant. Um, if the gospel is just a matter of getting souls into heaven, then yes, the prophets kind of are just a collection of grump and confusion. Um, but I'm utterly convinced that the gospel is so much more than that. Um, it, I think it changes everything. I don't think that Jesus is so much our ticket to heaven as much as the restorer of everything. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Everything that's broken and corrupted and damaged on earth. People, relationships, polluted rivers, unjust social systems, our spirituality, the whole bang lot needs the restoration of Jesus. And if that's the case, the prophets have a lot to say. They open our eyes to the brokenness and they stir a sort of disquiet in our hearts about the current status quo. They make us wonderfully uncomfortable with the, with the social norms that are broken. They help us to see ugliness where we normally see normality. They see, like in Isaiah 44, they see lumps of wood when others can only see powerful God. They liquefy things that we sort of set in concrete. They help us to see the world as it really is. They sort of strip the gloss off and make us aware of the hidden but the false narratives, uh, the false gospels that are so dominant in our, in our social norms. Because if we're not able to see things as they really are, we have no possibility of, of hoping for an alternative reality. And so the prophets help us to grieve the present because grieving the present is sort of the necessary first step to longing for a different future. And so it's no wonder then that Abraham Heschel, one of the a prominent Jewish um, biblical scholars, once described the prophets as some of the most disturbing people ever. <clears throat> and Isaiah invites us to do that this morning. The backstory to chapter 11 uh, is in part chapter 6, a few pages earlier. We have that well-known passage where God asks the question, who can I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, O Lord, send me. Uh, and while that made for a really quotable scripture, I think he immediately regretted saying that. <laughs> um, <laughs> because the next part of his message, the, the next part of the message that he had to bring uh, entailed saying some pretty harsh things. Uh, entailed telling the people of Judah, the people living in sort of the lower half of Israel, who had sort of divided away from Israel, that their enjoyment of and their ben benefiting from uh, the power of Assyria uh, and, and Assyria's rapidly sort of expanding empire, that was all about to come to a terrible an abrupt end. While they believed that the success they were enjoying was God's blessing, Isaiah's message involved almost stating the exact opposite of that. Uh, they were to lose the land that God had given them. And they had such a narrow understanding of God's promises that, that they figured the deal was done, that they could never sort of lose the land. And so they coddled up to this superpower of the day and figured that it was part of God's guiding and, and blessing them. But in chapter 6, Isaiah says, no, and he uses the metaphor of a tree. He says, sure, you're like a, a huge tree that seems immovable, 
massive and strong, that continues to grow year in and year out, that lives on through the centuries while kings come and kings go. But you've forgotten that huge trees can be cut down, and that's what's going to happen. Like a huge oak tree, your time has come to be cut down, your stump will be burnt, and your grandeur will be forgotten. And so I quote, he says, even if a tenth part remains in it of that tree, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it's felled. I would argue that our times aren't that different. And I would argue that the Christian community in Australia is largely captive to the dominant good news stories in our society. Uh, just one example that I think fits the sort of narrative uh, in, in Isaiah um, kind of shows up, or is highlighted by this, um, by a study that was done a few years ago in 2015 that showed that 81% of Australian evangelicals uh, believe that spending $29 billion a year on our military was reasonable while remaining relatively silent on, on significant cuts to, a, to our comparatively small foreign aid budget. I've found that even raising the issue of, uh, of non-violence in Christian circles is hazardous. Um, and I've found that, that, that asking the question of how Jesus' statement to love our enemies should inform our military work is usually laughed off as, as ludicrous or utopian, but he did say that. I think we're largely captive to the myth of redemptive violence, this idea, which I think is a ridiculous idea, that the best way to create peace uh, is by using the threat of violence. And, I, <clears throat> and we can't even imagine or seem to consider that there might be an alternative to that. And so we cling to the hope that increasing surveillance or military technologies will make our world a safer place. So we vote for longer jail terms and harsher laws in hopes that it will actually change people. But it doesn't. Bob Goodswad, an author who I find incredibly insightful, points out how if you have a system of perpetual military growth, it will ultimately collapse in on itself. It's unsustainable. And not only that, he highlights how having an arms race uh, hasn't, it hasn't actually made the world any safer. In fact, it's done quite the opposite. Never before in the history of the earth has humanity had the ability to obliterate every living thing on the earth. It's never happened before, but we have that ability now. That's what perpetual military growth will get you. That's what the path of violence will get you. Look at every empire through, through history. The huge oak tree that we're tending will eventually be cut down one day. Perhaps ours will cut itself down. Its stump will be burned and our grandeur will be forgotten. And I quote, even if a tenth part remains in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains standing when it's felled. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but that's the scene for our passage. That's the backstory for the good news. Um, the grieving that needs to be done before we can accept the kind of hope that's offered in Isaiah 11. You can't look forward to the reality of Jesus without first coming to grips with the false realities of the present. Otherwise, we just end up making Jesus fit into the status quo and he doesn't fit. So here in chapter 11, Isaiah starts to map out the story of hope that we need to hear, and that's the second equally important role of the prophet, to offer hope and to stir our hearts towards God's reality. Sure, the current way of using might and violence and power will need to go, just like it needed to go back then. It will need to be demolished and dismantled and burnt. But out of that huge blackened stump will come a small green shoot, there's no mention of it becoming a huge looming presence once again. In fact, everything we read in the rest of Isaiah 
uh, points to Jesus as being sort of small and, and, and insignificant in terms of his birth. It says in chapter 53, another well-known uh, verse, he grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And so the Gospels find Jesus being born in a very ordinary circumstances, in a very ordinary town in backwards Galilee, to the point that people were confused by who he was because they said, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? This doesn't make sense. And so out of this huge blackened stump comes one small green shoot, a ridiculous recovery perhaps, um, hardly a great comeback, but, but one that achieves everything that the former way of, thing, of doing things claimed it would bring, but was never able to do. Just have a read of it there in Isaiah, or, or, or we read it just before, and, and tell, me what, tell me whether you'd like life to be along these kinds of lines. Whether one with the most, most power, verse 2 to 3, is full of the Spirit of the Lord. Imagine a world like that, where the world is ruled with someone who's full of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Could you imagine what tangible changes would happen in our world and in our societies if those uh, who had power ruled like that? Imagine a world where the vulnerable receive justice, justice, verse 3 to 5, where litigation can't be dragged on forever through the courts by the rich, where corporations are actually held to account, where politicians make decisions that are just rather than reflective of the lobbyists or the party donors, where justice and policy can't be bought, but a world is governed in such a way where there are no vulnerable because the abundance of the earth has been shared, where everyone has enough. Imagine a world, verse 6 to 9, where violence and fear is no longer, where we don't need to be scared for our children, where we don't see the animal kingdom as our competitors, where we don't see the earth as something that needs to be battled, but something that we can love and cherish and, and be in relationship with, where force and violence, where hurting and destroying are forgotten means of achieving things, where we don't consider them options. Who doesn't long for that kind of world? I know I physically ache for it sometimes. But here's the rub, and I'll, and I'll close with this. <clears throat> Isaiah spoke those words 740 years before Jesus came. He died, and they still hadn't come to pass. A hundred years after his death, folks might have well started questioning his vision as an alternative reality. 500 years after, his, after Isaiah's death, most people would have forgotten his words or given up hoping in them. 700 years after Isaiah's words, if anyone was caught quoting him with hope, they would have probably been labelled utopian and naive. But 740 years later, a baby cried in a manger in Bethlehem. And 770 odd years after Isaiah uttered those words, Jesus stood up in the synagogue and declared that he had, from Luke 4, been appointed to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Essentially, he was proclaiming the year of Jubilee. And three short years later, he uttered those words, it's finished. And three days later, he did the impossible and conquered death. Isaiah's hope-inspiring vision of the, of the sort of alternative reality of Jesus is a huge source of encouragement for me. Because while these words invite me to a, a different, a far richer reality... His example allows me to dream of a time when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the earth, as we read. When all people on the earth will live along God's original design for us. 
It allows me to dream of that time, even if that's 100, 500, 770 years later. We're so fixated on quick solutions that when things don't work out for a few short years, we rubbish them and write them off. I regularly hear people say that we shouldn't try to address poverty or climate change or social injustices because they're too far gone or they're too hard or it won't work or they're impossible to change. Those are the words of people who have forgotten how to dream, I think, who have been captivated by the dominant narratives in our world and who have perhaps given up on the painful task of grieving. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favourite authors, said, Christianity hasn't been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and not tried. I'm not at all suggesting that attempting to do life along these lines of, of, of Jesus is easy, far from it. Uh, just a few weeks back, a friend of mine uh, lost a colleague to suicide and they worked in the area of mental health and suicide prevention. That's pretty hope-crushing. I met someone recently who's working with elderly people suffering from dementia and they were exhausted after a regular day's work and, and surely that raises questions of why do we even care for these people who don't even know who they are. I advocate for non-violence but I find myself using socially sanctioned violent ways to, to make my kids do what I want. We're hypocrites, broken people, attempting to do otherworldly things in a very worldly world and succumbing to the status quo happens regularly. It's hard, it's so very hard to take Jesus' words seriously and attempt to live them out on the narrow path. But it's my prayer that we'll be Isaiah-like on the road, that we'll have eyes to see through the false promises of our dominant culture, that we'll be people of hope in the face of hopelessness, that we'll be people who know that there is life, perhaps hidden away, where other people can only see blackened stumps, that we'll be people of vision who keep our ability to dream in the midst of nightmarish conditions, regardless of whether re Jesus returns in our lifetime or 100 years or 500 or 700 years. But I do know the day is coming when everything will be put right, because it already conclusively has been put right in the birth, the death, the, the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There is a small green shoot full of promise, full of hope, and it's my prayer that we'll be fixated on that small but stunning and beautiful reality this Advent. Can I pray for us? Dear God, I thank you for, um, uh, for, for your work. I thank you for, um, for Isaiah, Lord, and um, for his um, trust that things that you said were right and good and true, Lord, that um, I thank you that he didn't settle for for the status quo, for the way that things were, but that um, having understood your, uh, your desire for humanity in the earth, uh, he was able to cling to that vision even while Judah was falling apart around him. Um, I thank you for the people who have held that hope uh, through the ages. I thank you that, that you, um, you bless that hope by coming to walk and live amongst us uh, to restore everything that's broken. I pray that you give us the courage to see the things that we need to see in our communities. I pray that you uh, give us the, the courage to hope uh, in the reality that you're already bringing to fruition around us and give us the energy um, to be able to stick on the short and, uh, sorry, on the, uh, on the narrow winding path that leads to life. In Jesus' name, amen.